Hi, this is Sarah Peretsky, and you're listening to Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types, the new season. I am your host, Eric Beatner, and we have a new podcasting network behind us now, the Lit Hub Network, and I am proud to be part of the family. I want to thank you for your patience during my time off, but I am back with a whole lot of great authors to come on this, the show about crime, thriller, and mystery writers. This is the show that gives solid advice to aspiring authors. People don't really mention this, but the key to literary and television success is writing for dolphins. The show where the guests are always excited to be here. I mean, in hindsight, it's exciting, but oh my God, I would not do it again. Well, okay. I'm going to start today by doing what I don't do enough of, according to my accountant and my wife, and that's plug one of my own books. My newest novel, Two in the Head, just came out last Monday. This is weird and wild, and my favorite review quote so far called it, quote, madder than a box of frogs and completely off the wall. <laughs> Author J. Todd Scott said, quote, two in the head is a straight shot between the eyes, a gangbusters plot, punch drunk pace, and gut punch action propel this black-hearted thriller. Yeah, now, do I think this is the best starting place for my writing if you haven't read any of my stuff before? I don't know. But if you want something that's totally different and action-packed, I think you could do a lot worse. It's available now to order from your local indie bookstore, or it's also up on all the usual online sites. But for now, let's jump into talking to some authors, shall we? For my first interview back after the break, I went big. My first conversation with Stockholm, Sweden, where I talked to the writing team behind the author Lars Kepler. Husband and wife team of Alexandra and Alexander Anderiel both had successful writing careers independently, but when they teamed up to write thrillers together, they took on the persona of Lars Kepler and turned it into the best-selling author in all of Sweden across any genre. Their series, starring Detective Junalina, is now seven books strong with the release of Lazarus, their latest. I'm proud to say we got the time zones right for the first time when I caught up with them from their home in Stockholm. Well, this is my first time uh, talking with anyone in, in Sweden, uh, so congratulations. You're, you're trailblazers. Oh, we're honored. <laughs> we are honored, yes. <laughs> well, I'm honored to have you both uh, on Writer Types. This is a, a wonderful chance to talk to a writing team who's become incredibly popular since teaming up together, although you both had successful writing careers before. It seems like uh, writing books uh, together was the right choice for you guys. Yeah, it's, it's the best choice we made, I think. Yeah, because, you know, being a writer is pretty lonely, actually. Because when you write, uh, most of us writers can't let anyone in to your story before it's completed. And, you know, if you're writing a story, it might take four or five years. And, and you think about it all day and almost all night, too. And you can't let anyone in. And that's... It's, it's good to be two. <laughs> so, so when you you two, you can, you know, discuss your story all through the pro process, and it's a wonderful thing. Yeah, I know. I definitely uh, keep my stories very much inside my own head while I'm writing, and don't let anybody in, especially my wife. I mean, she's she would be the last person I would tell about a story when it's in progress. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because, because you, you, you destroy the magic. Yeah. Right, in, in some way, when you tell somebody about your story before it's ready. It's like it's already told, and you don't have to write it. And is it true that something you guys write at the same desk at the same time? <laughs> yeah, but we have uh, <laughs> we have two computers, so we have a very long desk actually here. Yeah. So side by side, and one computer each, and then we email each other all the time. <laughs> so uh, Alexander writes his part of the text, and I write my part, and then we change text with each other. It really works well. Yeah, because it doesn't have to be, you know, completed when you email. Sometimes when I write, I only hear the characters speak. So, so I just hear the voices and I write down their words, their their lines. And then I email 
he has a dialogue to Alexandra, and half an hour later, she emails me back, and suddenly they have faces, and they're doing things, they're running through deep snow or something. Wow, that's fascinating. Now, readers in America have really for, you know, probably over a decade now, longer, have had a real fascination with crime stories uh, from Scandinavia, from your part of the world. I mean, do you have any idea why there's something about that region that has captured the attention of really the whole world? Oh, well, I think maybe it has a lot to do with the success of Stieg Larsson. Um, but, but even before that, it's it's a very long tradition in Scandinavia, and especially in Sweden, I think. Everyone reads crime fiction here since the 60s, actually. Yeah, but it hasn't been that internationally well known. I don't know. I don't know. And I think the genre is so big and uh, has such and big yeah, varieties. So um, it's hard to say. Yeah. Well, so something's working for you. So <laughs> Now, so Lazarus, uh, the seventh in your series, and I would assume with the darkness of the human mind, there's just no end to the stories you can tell. But is there ever a temptation to give... Jonah and Saga a break? <laughs> you put them through so much. We know. We feel sorry for them sometimes. And a lot of readers think we're too cruel to them. <laughs> they, they need a vacation. and they... yeah, But it's also part of the excitement of being a writer, that you can actually push your characters to the extremes and to places where you yourself never would dare to go and do things you never would do. So you kind of have a universe as a writer. That's why I think it's the best job <laughs> there is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and I guess you don't have to feel guilty when uh, if they make it out in the end, right? Oh, they are very clever. <laughs> we trust them. We trust Jonah Lino. <laughs> now, are they, in, in a way cleverer than you guys are in real life? Yeah, of course they are. Uh, it takes more than a year for us to write a book and they just solve the cases in in like one week or something. They see all the <laughs> clues we've been thinking of for months. <laughs> yeah, they. I think they are so much what we aren't in a way. I would be paralyzed <laughs> if something happened to me the way it happens in our books. But somehow our imagination are are drawn to these dark labyrinths in a way, and uh, but we still feel that the stories are kind of optimistic yeah. because it may start in chaos and murder and uh, injustice, but but then we have this wonderful, satisfying journey to to order again. Yeah. I think maybe that's why it's it's such a pleasure to both write and read these stories yeah because we know uh, it will end well in some way it's it's a roller coaster you know it's it's safe even though it's scary yes absolutely well and i think right there you've you've nailed why crime fiction is the global powerhouse that it is yeah i think so and i think also it is novels at least our books they are here and now yeah, in our society yes yeah, it's, it's contemporary mm. so it's kind of a new realistic novel in a way, I think. Well, now you plot together, you research together, you write together, but I want to be honest here, of the two of you, who has the darker mind? I mean, who's coming up with the most twisted plot points in these books? Alexandra, she has the most crazy ideas, you know, she, she's, she's the wildest one. <laughs> yeah, and Alexander is more, you know, thorough and, uh, well, I think it's kind of the fruits of our minds plotting yeah. together and colliding making, yeah, in a way. Yeah. So I, I don't think we could write these things alone. No, because I can make it very dark. <laughs> So it's it's my speciality to really really make. I wanted the reader to feel the darkness, not not just in, in the story, but in the setting and everything. Yeah, well, it's and it's it sounds like maybe this it's a shade darker when you get together. Yeah, yeah it is yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah, and if it's any consolation, we do scare ourselves yeah, very much. A lot. And uh, I always have nightmares. 
when we are in the middle of the writing process. Yeah, from start we thought, uh, well, this is crazy. It's it's not meant to be, you know, unhealthy <laughs> <laughs> to be writing these books. No, but but uh, nowadays we think it's a good sign because uh, yeah, when I start to have the nightmares, yeah. we feel that okay, we are in touch with the fear. Yeah, way. yeah, it's now it's for real because it must cost something to write too, yes, as the, as it costs. Uh, Jonah and uh, Saga, of course, to solve the case, it must cost the writer to write the story. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think if you're that invested, then you're one step closer to getting the reader that invested, right? Yes, absolutely. Think, yeah, you have to be true. It has to be and, uh, You're absolutely me, right. Uh, a reader will notice immediately if you try to fool them, because it's not about fooling. It's true stories. Uh, from heart, of course, it's not from reality. Well, no, I've I've co-written a few books myself, and and it went well. But I don't always recommend it to other writers because <laughs> it is littered with landmines, even in a, a casual relationship. But uh, I mean, clearly, you guys have have made it work. I mean, would your children agree, or do they often see you guys bickering over plot points at the dinner table and that kind of thing? <laughs> well, I think they would agree that it works, but it didn't work from start because we needed uh, Lars Kepler to be able to write together. Mm. Because when we started to try to write together, it always ended up in fights because you have your style and you have your ideas. As soon as we came up with the idea to create a new writer, it's actually been a pleasure. Yeah, a pleasure. <laughs> uh, and I think uh, our kids would agree, even though we, <laughs> they sometimes think we're annoying when we discuss plot uh, over dinner table. <laughs> <laughs> have, have you ever been able to use the success of the books against them and say, why, why can't you kids make us proud like these books? <laughs> <laughs> no, we are very proud of yeah. them. Yeah. Oh, they are They're sweet. sweet, sweet kids. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember that. I'll yeah. take that with me. Yeah. <laughs> Well, isn't that the way? I, I've I certainly have most of the darkest fiction writers I know are both the nicest people with the sweetest families. How does that happen? <laughs> I think you have to. Maybe I don't know, but but I think you have to be pretty calm and happy yourself if you are going to be able to dig deep and re like really, really in those labyrinths. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Yeah, stability. A stable yeah. life is, is a good start. Now, I've never uh, traveled to Sweden or been in that area. It's, it's definitely on my list. I would love to, to see that part of the world and, and experience that. But I mean, Stockholm is a place that I think most Americans only know through fiction. And clearly, there are cities in America, like Los Angeles, where I live, which are constantly exported to the rest of the world. I mean, do you think... Sweden and Stockholm in particular it gets a good representation to the rest of the world, or is it uh, a much brighter and more positive place than, than we're getting a picture of? Well, Stockholm is a really safe city, uh, so so it's it's not like in fiction, but it, but it's a beautiful city. Uh, yeah. You should absolutely come here, especially in the summer. Yeah. It's really really yeah. beautiful in the summer. But of course, we have the darkness uh, during the whole winter, and it's almost dark for almost night for several months so it's it's a bit heavy yeah so don't come in the winter <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I live about a mile from the beach in los angeles i think it would be quite a quite a shock to me yeah, yeah. <laughs> with seven books uh, under the belt and and obviously a lot more stories to tell i mean are you finding out things about these characters that are a constant surprise to you? We do. Yeah, because also Jonah Lynn and Saga Bauer, they, they change throughout the books. Even, you know, you can read all our books as standalones. So if you read them as a series, you will have the, the full story yeah, of the them. Yeah, the development and... and and of course, then, yeah, they, have they get yeah, they get scars, and and since uh, we have this, uh, we write in present tense, so it's here and now. So they, our characters live parallel life with us, so we don't know that much about their future. We we just follow mostly, and they surprise us a lot all the time, yeah. which which is uh, one of the fun parts of writing. 
I don't know. I would have thought myself when I started to write the series that by now I would know these characters completely. Uh, but there are still things yeah, that we're, we're we, still curious. Yeah, yeah, we are still curious, and I think that is a really good good motor for us to to keep on following them. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. Oh, this is a great. You guys are making writing sound like uh, it's it's a great job and and a whole lot of fun. And you're skipping over all of the parts where it's torture and <laughs> making miserable. So. <laughs> Maybe I'm doing it wrong. Yeah, well, we are optimistic. Maybe, yeah, we, we, we were writers before we started to write together as Lars Kepler. And and actually writing together has been such an enjoyable... Yeah, game changer. Yeah, a creative rush for us. That's wonderful. Boy, you, you guys have this down. I'm going to go talk to my wife. We need to start working better together. Yes. yes. Do that. Yeah. Say hello from us. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I really need to talk to my wife because we can't seem to even order dinner together as smoothly as they write entire novels. Anyway, the new book is Lazarus. It's out now, and the eighth in the series will be coming stateside later this year. Well, now on to an author much closer to home for me, fellow Los Angeles native Lee Goldberg. Lee has an extensive resume writing for TV and with novels, too many to list here, but they do include his co-written books with Janet Ivanovich, which have been New York Times bestsellers, his Ian Ludlow thrillers, and his latest series, the Eve Ronin series of police procedurals, which started with Lost Hills and now continues in book two, Bone Canyon. I spoke with Lee from his home right in the neighborhoods that he writes about. I'm using my fancy new microphone. Oh, we're professionals. Yeah, I decided to up my game a little bit since I was doing so many radio interviews and streaming interviews and Zoom things that I wanted to have something better than my crappy laptop microphone. I am constantly surprised at the new state of late night talk shows and uh, like genuine millionaire celebrities who are just using their laptop mics and no headphones. And no lights. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so you have people like you say on CNN shooting in their bathroom with their iPhone, <laughs> with their laptop and the world's shittiest internet connection. It's like, my God, you're you're millionaires. You're, you're, you're world leaders. You're all these people. Well, here we are, authors leading the way once again. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, Lee Goldberg, thank you so much for joining me on Writer Types. Uh, you are an incredibly prolific author in novels and teleplays. I mean, you have hundreds of credits, it seems. Is there any form of writing you haven't tackled? Science? No, I haven't done science fiction. Um <laughs> I guess I haven't done fantasy. Okay. I've done werewolves. I've done lifeguards. I've even done talking dolphins. <laughs> and, and dolphins that don't talk. <laughs> like how many people have you interviewed who've written for both talking and non-speaking dolphin heroes? I think very few. I think, I think you are blazing a trail here. <laughs> I, I wrote uh, for Sequest, which had a character that was a talking dolphin, which you know, was a dream come true for me to write for the talking dolphin. And you know, I made a vow that I would never write for a dolphin again, which I thought was a safe vow. But proving that God exists and has a sense of humor, three weeks later, I was on the New Adventures of Flipper, starring Jessica Alba. <laughs> That's funny. I, I have uh, I have two lonely uh, TV credits uh, to my name, and one of them uh, involved a dolphin. That's there you go. People don't really mention this, but the key to literary and television success is writing for dolphins. <laughs> Well, now Eve Ronan is back in Bone Canyon, the sequel to Lost Hills. Now, I will admit I don't read a ton of police procedurals. One of the reasons maybe that I don't read a lot of them, to me, it's kind of the hardest genre to really nail down among you know the many layers of crime fiction that are out there. Is there one thing that you, that you think sets aside a story rather than just being about the police into a police procedural? Well, I think too many authors get stuck on the procedure part of police procedural, that they forget that what readers want is not procedure. What they want is character. What they want is a compelling story. What they want are high stakes. So what you need is a, a an interesting character with a lot of conflict, a lot of obstacles in his or her way. You need a point of view and a voice. The procedure should be in the, the subtext. It should not be the driving force of the story. I think the reason we all love Harry Bosch is not for 
Michael Connolly's detail to how a murder book looks and what size paper clips they use on their reports, but the Bosch character in that police procedural world. The procedure adds a level of reality to his adventures, but it's Harry Bosch you care about. And to that end, you made Eve a, a relative newbie. I mean, she's she's constantly sort of learning, constantly having to deal with her colleagues who are maybe a little skeptical of her. I mean, what what was behind that choice? Because I guess you know the other way to go is you've you've got the classic grizzled veteran in the police department, but uh, it seems like you get a lot of character mileage out of Eve uh, being a little bit of a fish out of water in her in her new role. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm so tired of the grizzled veteran. I mean, the cliche, and this goes back to the 50s with Ed McBain and Steve Carella in the 87th Precinct books, is the middle-aged detective who's really smart but isn't appreciated by his superiors, who's supremely self-confident and has a dark past. So many of these characters now have families slaughtered by serial killers or they endured horrible <laughs> PTSD in the army or they lost a testicle in a shootout or whatever, and... <laughs> And it's ridiculous. And they're also alcoholics and, and uh, they, they talk to ghosts or whatever. <laughs> I wanted a much more realistic, grounded character that we readers could relate to, who is more like us than more like the cliche of the detective. And also, I knew what I was competing against. How do you outdo Harry Bosch? How do you outdo Joseph Wamba and and T. Jefferson Parker and, and, and all the others who, who've walked down this road before. And with Eve Ronan, she's the youngest female homicide detective in Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. And she didn't get the job through experience or skill. She got it through politics. She leveraged a viral video of herself uh, making an off-duty arrest of a of a violent movie star beating up his girlfriend and, and got a promotion out of it. So she's in a job she knows that she doesn't deserve. But she does have an innate skill. So she's constantly proving herself, but making a lot of mistakes along the way. And I thought that gave me so much more to explore with the character, so many more interesting situations. So even if I'm approaching a situation that may seem familiar on the surface, I can deal with it in a fresh and, and unique way. Well, and you know, you write about Los Angeles in a way that I think is is very real, especially in the sense that the film and TV business, and sort of you know, even just the larger media business, like you say, with this viral video, it's always looming over us for those of us that live here, right? It's you you can't escape the fact that this is such a company town, and and it has to make its way into any novel about Los Angeles, right? And yet it doesn't. That you hit on it. That is the really weird thing about living in Los Angeles. This is a city where we make dreams come true, fake dreams. But you know, we, we all the police procedurals that you see on TV and film start here. The streets of our city are a stage. There are so few streets in this city that haven't been on film, either right. at Los Angeles or a fictional place. So we are all walking through someone else's dream, and 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 every cop and everybody here is aware of what the cultural reflection is of, of what we're doing. So I think it's impossible for a, a detective working a high-profile case in Los Angeles not to be aware of the media and the cultural influences shaping what they're doing and watching what they're doing. But in Eve's case, I take it to another level. She got her job by virtue of the media, a viral video. And now, after her first case, she has even more popularity, and, and Hollywood's trying to make it a TV series or movie about her. So now she is confronting not only her own reputation, but also what could be a mythical take on who she is. She'll have to live up to an idealized version of herself. My God, who wants that? I mean, yes, there's the money, but but still. Yeah, it's it's always interesting. I see you know people live in another town. Like if someone's in Chicago and they're there doing exteriors for Chicago Fire, everyone will stop and they'll take pictures and they'll post it to social media. And LA is the one town where it's like, God damn it, they closed down this street to shoot yeah. their stupid TV show. These <laughs> oh yeah, can... here in my neighborhood, you know, we actually I have, I live in a gated community. We have rules against shooting here because so many of us <laughs> in the community work in the business. The last thing we want is a damn film crew in our street making our lives miserable. Right. And But it's everywhere. But it, it's not only that. It's you go to the grocery store and you see celebrities with their kids buying groceries and nobody bothers them because we all realize it's just a job like logging or waitressing or insurance sales or anything else. So it, it's not so amazing to us. Um, I remember I was at a restaurant 
and uh, one of those reality shows for buying and selling real estate or whatever came in and they were shooting the, uh, the you know the person having lunch, the interior designer or whatever. And, and they wanted me to move to get out of the shot. <laughs> and, and me and my, the person I was talking to, I was like, go screw yourself. I'm a seer having lunch. You know, <laughs> I, I don't give a damn about your show. Go away. Right. <laughs> One thing I've noticed about your writing is you have a very straightforward writing style. You know, I read simple things like character descriptions or scene setting. And like, especially in Bone Canyon, I kept thinking, okay, I've, I probably would have overwritten that. Where do you think that simplicity of writing comes from? Is that part of your, your training in screenwriting and being a little more skeletal about it? It is unique to my Eve Ronan novels. Okay. If you read my other fiction, like uh, True Fiction, Killer Thriller, Fake Truth, my Ian Ludlow Thriller series, I have an authorial voice. But I made the the conscious decision to make my writing disappear in the Eve Ronan books. I didn't want you to be aware of the writing at all. I wanted you to get so caught up in the action and dialogue that you forget you're reading a book, that you're just caught up in the images in your mind. So any writing that would call attention to itself and remind you that you're reading I cut. Or if there's anything funny to say or a unique observation, I put it in the mouths of one of my characters. And if I couldn't do that, I cut it. It has been the hardest writing I've ever done. To write that lean, to have just the facts, ma'am, without making it dull, but to move the story forward in an effective way is extremely hard work. <laughs> in some ways, um, to my dismay, these two books have got, well, I shouldn't say these two because Bone Canyon just came out, but Lost Hills has been the most critically and commercially successful book I've ever written. And it has, in many ways, less of me than any book I've, I've written. So. <laughs> Clearly a repudiation of my writing. But um, I think there is a tendency for some authors to go overboard, to get too caught up in writing a, a clever phrase or a fancy, you know, witty metaphor or what have you. And all it does is shine a light on the writing to the detriment of the of the story and the pace, to my in my view. Yeah. Well, I, I'm glad you brought up the Ian Ludlow books because th th these fascinate me because uh, you know the, the three books are they're funny and they're exciting in their own. But I also love the long memory that you have because a lot I, I don't know if a lot of people know, but Ian Ludlow was your first pen name. Yes. Uh, when you were writing very early on, and now you've basically pulled him, uh, pulled a fictional character and turned him into a different fictional character. So now he's an author in the books that, that you can torture. Well, <laughs> true fiction was about a guy. Uh, I got to back up a little bit, but I'm always amused by the people who are writing these action adventure books of these heroes who are quick witted and can handle any violent situation tough as can be, fearless, and you meet them in their pot belly middle-aged guys. You know? <laughs> They're nothing like the heroes they write, you know, who, who just glance at a woman and she collapses in multiple orgasms. And though that happens to you and I, Eric, it's happened well, well, so often, it's embarrassing to see women approach us and that happens. But in any case, I thought it'd be funny if I wrote a book about a guy who writes basically Jack Reacher stories, who finds himself in a Reacher situation and has to deal with it. And as an in-joke to myself, just to amuse myself, I wrote the, these men's action adventure vigilante novels back in the 80s under the pseudonym Ian Ludlow. So I'd be on the shelf next to Robert Ludlum and Ian for <laughs> Ian Fleming. So people would think, oh, I've read something by that guy. It wasn't bad. So I thought it was sort of an in-joke to kind of make this guy me. I would I would call him Ian Ludlow. So it's been fun. It's been fun to do that. And uh, you know, I, I was fortunate to get a really great blurb from Lee Child who said, oh, my God, this is my life. And, uh, <laughs> Well, and you always mix, uh, I, I get, aside from these Eve Ronan books, which you, you've already said are a bit of a departure, your your standard MO seems to be mixing a lot of humor in with the death and the mayhem. I mean, it, that seems to be a pretty crucial element to you. Is that just your natural personality coming out on the page? Or do you really try to balance the, the, the two when you're plotting out and say, okay, things got really intense here. We need a moment of lightness. I think it's both. I mean, I think of the most harrowing moments in my life, most painful moments. There's always actually been humor there, too. I also think humor humanizes characters. It makes you invest in them more than than getting people to uh, sympathize with their harrowing, nightmarish past. You know, I, I think it's if you can laugh with the hero, 
in a moment of stress, you're more likely to bond with them than if they're sharing with you the horror of their family being slaughtered by a serial killer. You know, it's right. just, I think we can all understand. And the humor that I, I try to have in these books is not black humor. It's not making fun of a situation. It's humor that expresses the anxiety that someone's having or the relationship conflicts that people are having. I, I try to have relationship humor, not not punchlines and, and insults. I think that's real. I, I actually find it less realistic when I'm reading a book that's humorless, that doesn't have one moment of, of levity. I just right. don't think that's what our lives are. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's, I think you're right, especially the, the sometimes the more the stress gets ratcheted up, the more likely we are to diffuse it just for ourselves. Like I've, you need your own pressure release. And sometimes the best way to do that is just with a quick joke. And then you can get back to focusing on the intensity. Well, I can give you an example from my own life. My mother was gravely ill. Uh, the doctor told us she had not even a day to live. We, I had to get the family together to her bedside quickly, which I did. The whole family got there and, and she passed away peacefully in bed with the whole family around her. A few moments after she passed, the chaplain for the hospital came in and said, would you like me to say a few words for your mother? Now, we're not a religious family. We're Jewish, but we're not religious. And my, my sister, always willing to hedge her bets with the grade upstairs, said, sure, say a few words. So the chaplain you know, gave a, I don't know what you call it, a, a, not a speech, but he, you know, he, said, he said his thing with, you know, rest in peace, all, all that stuff. And when he was finished, he turned to my sister and said, um, how was that? And she said, thank you very much. It was, it was very nice. And he goes, yes, yes. So it's been this victory dance at the foot of my mom's bed. Yes. We're all staring at him. He goes, oh. Excuse me, I've been away for three years on a sabbatical. This is my first death. I thought maybe I lost my mojo, but I still have it. You guys have been great. Sorry for your loss. Bye. But we broke into laughter. I mean, my mom would have loved that. And, and my brother, who's an author as well, said, I have dibs on this. <laughs> he had this to write about it first. But you know, if we hadn't all been there to witness it, we never would have believed it. It was the perfect moment. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, it's how we deal with it, right? I mean, and and also how we deal with it is to to read about these traumatic and horrific events on the page, and then hope that everything works out in the end. And when you get to the end of a book, everything works out. Your main hero is still alive. The world will survive another day, right? Yes, that's the the bottom line satisfaction. And and you have a beginning, middle, and end, and you have a a closed case. You, you have everything solved. Though that's not entirely true. I leave a few strands at the end of Bone Canyon, not in the central mystery, but in, in another one. Because um, not life isn't always so clean and open and shut. Well, and there's got to be more books. Exactly. All right, enough fun. It's time to call up our resident book reviewers, the Malmans, to see what they've been reading in these very challenging times. And I, well, that's not to say that talking with the Malmans is not fun. They're, all, they're actually very fun. Well, it's been several months that we've been locked down, and I guess there's two ways that we could go with this. It's either a utopia for book readers because you have more time, uh, you're not commuting, there's, there's, we're trapped at home, we're not going out to eat. The, that to-be-read pile should be shrinking and we're all desperate for more books. On the other hand, it's been such a crazy year. Have you guys had the brain capacity to do a, an average amount of reading above or below? What's What's it been like? I think I've been kind of steady. My reading capacity hasn't really dipped that much. I've been able to focus. I have started a record number of books this year. I am the champion of starting books. I get about halfway through and then I throw every single one of them against the wall. Oh, wow. I, I guess stress deals with everybody differently. Um, and I just can't sit still. I've watched a lot of Netflix. <laughs> On a serious note, like it's I'm beating myself up like crazy. But but are you saying it's you, not the book, you think? It is me. It is guy. I cannot... Um, I, I can't finish the sentence, you know, I, <laughs> this is going to be going to be a very short segment then it is, it is. <laughs> well, is there anything you've gotten through anything you can recommend or how about this? Is there anything you're looking forward to once your brain is allowed to slow down a little bit? 
Yeah. So I've got two books on my list. One of them comes out on January 26th and that's The Wild by Owen Laukinen. Mm, yes. Yeah. It's his new YA thriller. So this is his second, uh, third foray, excuse me, into, into YA. And in this one, a girl named Dawn is sent to a wilderness boot camp by her parents because she's been making some bad decisions. As you can imagine, things don't go well. And eventually Dawn and the other girls start to fear for their lives while they're out in the wilderness. I really enjoy Laukinen's writing. Um, I just like his style and his, it, it, he writes a really tight prose. Yeah. Well, and, and he, he knows the outdoors better than almost anyone because he seems to spend most of his time out there. So if he's going to write a book about the wilds, uh, I would trust him. Although I, I am mad at him because I've, I have a book that takes place in the outdoors where things go bad and uh, now he's beaten me to market. So he's on my list. Dang it, Owen. <laughs> but I'm also looking forward to a new um, cozy series that's coming out. Uh, the book is called Arsenic and Adobo and it's by Mia Manansala. Yes. It comes out in May. I'm super excited to, to dive into this particular series. Um, I've been kind of adrift with no cozy series to as like a refresher between books. Um, once the Jess Lowry murder by month or Mia James series ended in 2019. Right. So I'm super excited to have a new badass female protagonist to follow around and, and check out her adventures. It seems at times like these seem to be tailor made for a, a good cozy. I mean, I, I know Similar to you, Dan, I think there's been a couple times that I've set aside books in the past couple months that I feel like I should really be enjoying this and I'm enjoying the writing and all is going well, but oh my God, this is so bleak and I just kind of can't put myself through that right now. So I've set a couple of books aside hoping that I'll pick them up later, Mm -hmm. but and the things that I reach for after that are definitely on the lighter side. You really nailed it. I'm like the... I I generally have no problem separating real world from book world, but uh, of late, it's like I need the Waltons or a little help on the prairie. I mean, just something good. Mm -hmm. Um, And like a side note, like that we, we devoured um, Ted Lasso on Apple plus. So good. Yeah. So good. Oh, that, that was the vaccine I needed this year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Well, I want the other one too. Well, all right, fine. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a crazy uh, crazy time to to try to balance the real world, you know, creeping in because obviously you know we we read and we watch movies and TV shows for an escape, and, and I think I've never understood the concept of escapism quite as well as I have in the past twelve months. Exactly. Exactly. I, I, now, when you are looking forward to stuff and thinking like, I'm going to try to get back into a normal frame of mind, are you going to you looking ahead to try to get back into a, a normal reading routine for you? Or are you looking to mix things up and maybe take your reading in a different direction in 2021? That's a really good question. I know it is, Dan. I'm a professional podcaster. You are <laughs> a professional podcaster. There's always the standards that, that we look for. You know, I, I'm always going to read something in a crime series, something in an, uh, a thriller-esque. But the fun part is finding new-to-you writers and books or yep. um, things that, that folks are putting out that, that you've heard about in advance. But yeah, you're always looking for something new, and then you go back into the tried and true because um, you like them. But if you're not trying new writers or new authors, then it's just stagnant, and you're reading the same thing over and over and over again. And comfort food, even like tater tot hot dish, gets really old. The fifteen twenty handle. <laughs> yeah. wow. uh, and in case anyone forgot, Dan and Kate are from Minnesota. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really like tater tot hot dish. It but, is really good. Yeah, but not every day. No. <laughs> so, uh, so okay. So, what is on your radar? Sure. Uh, Midnight Lullaby by James D. F. Hanna. This is a series that uh, has won the Seamus in the past. It stars Henry Malone um, in a, really a classic um, PI adventure uh, mystery series. And I, Hannah really gets the, the guts of, of a Spencer-esque character. Secondly, so that's like that traditional PI style um, with almost a James Bond leaning to it. Um, in June, our old friend Brian Quartermas um, is making his 
a major publisher debut partnering with Stuart Woods. He's got a novel coming out called Jackpot. Uh, hero Teddy Fay uh, is wrapped up in an international adventure filled with action and intrigue set up against the background of an international film festival. I'm really excited uh, that he's got this opportunity um, and doing something completely different. That should nice. Be See, it's, it's not just the readers. It's the writers who need uh, maybe a bit of a reset in 2021. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Or a chance to flex a different muscle. All right, guys. Well, uh, I look forward to hearing uh, what you guys have read in the interim when I talk to you next. If you can actually finish something, Dan, and not throw it at the wall. But, uh, you know, at the very least, I look forward to hearing about the first hundred pages of something. Absolutely. Oh, I got that part down. My final guest today is debut novelist Nev March. Her novel Murder in Old Bombay is the winner of the Mystery Writers of America First Novel Award and takes place in the late 1800s in colonial India, where two women have died by either jumping or being thrown from a clock tower. Army officer Jim Agnihotri sets out to investigate the deaths using what he's learned from his beloved Sherlock Holmes stories. And what follows is a fascinating glimpse of an era that I knew precious little about and that really comes to life on these pages. I caught up with Nev to ask her about the release of her debut. Nev Marcha, congratulations on Murder in Old Bombay, your debut mystery. What an exciting time for you, right? Absolutely. I've so enjoyed this. But you come with a unique perspective for a first-time author, your book has already an award winner. I mean, tell us about that. Uh, Eric, it's just, uh, it's been marvelous. So I wrote this book in 2017, and um, I submitted it into a contest the Mystery Writers of America holds for unpublished manuscripts. Minotaur, which is an imprint of Macmillan, is the one that awards the publishing contract. So I had been pitching uh, for six months full time. I sent out 90 letters to agents, uh, got a whole slew of rejections. And in January of 2019, I found my agent, my wonderful agent, Jill Grosjean. And so she started pitching to publishers, and I'm expecting another six months of that. And meanwhile, I get this um, email from Mystery Writers of America saying, congratulations, you have won this award. (laughs) I sent it over to Jill with the title, yikes, because I had no idea what that meant. It's surreal. Eric, I felt like I was this newbie actor going to the Oscar Awards. (laughs) Well, the easiest sale of your agent's life, I would imagine. (laughs) She did say I made her job very easy, and she's been (laughs) wonderful. The title, Murder in Old Bombay, uh, boy, you aren't kidding. This takes place in 1892 in colonial India. Now, is this an era where you already knew a lot about this, or did you have to discover quite a lot while you wrote? Yeah, I knew some of it because the story, the actual, my story is based on real events. So I'd heard it heard it as a teenager, especially when I wanted to do something that my parents didn't want me to do, uh, something typically bold or adventurous. You know, Mumbai, India is, is very dangerous for women of all classes and communities. And uh, it's a way of telling a young woman, young girl, that things may not be as they appear. Even in daylight, you could be at risk, right? So that was why they would say, remember the Godridge girls, because these two young ladies, Farsi girls, had died in 1891. And it's an unsolved mystery to date. We still don't know what happened to them. So I did know about that period, not so much about the specifics. I had to do a lot of research to uncover the details of what was going on politically, as well as within the community. There were reformers, Uh, children, girls were typically married by the age of 15. Uh, For example, Mahatma Gandhi was married at the age of 13. And wow. his wife, yeah, and his wife was eleven, um, so it was normal, right, for that time. And as a result, a lot of the girls had 
babies when they were still teenagers and would die. So maternal deaths was were very, very common. So you had reformers at that time that were trying to increase the marital age. So that was that time period. I had to do a lot of research. Yeah, I learned a lot about how people talked, some of the strange words that are not in use anymore. Uh, <laughs> and a lot about the battles of the time. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm sure you probably already have research for, for the next couple of books uh, saved up. And, you know, you actually physically went there too. I mean, you climbed the tower where these two women died. That's correct. It's close to the public, uh, the actual Rajabite Tower in Bombay University. So I wrote, uh, I was there actually a number of times for my parents' uh, medical needs. Uh, they'd call and they'd want me to be with them in hospital. So I was there a lot uh, in 2000, between 2015 and 19. I went, I can't even tell you how many times. So I actually wrote to the university officials. I went there and pleaded for permission to go up. And lo and behold, two days before my flight, uh, I got a phone call saying, all right, if you really want to, we'll, we'll let you go. So I went up in, it was a blistering hot day in May. And I discovered in that horrible a vertical tube that I was claustrophobic. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, there are lights, okay? I had a flashlight thinking, okay, what would make this unbearable is if it was dark. Yeah. And um, the woman in front of me says, in in Hindi, you were talking Hindi, she said, I'm kind of scared. So the guard is telling me. <laughs> <laughs> and so I gave her the flashlight. I said, all right, well, you're ahead. Take the flashlight. Just in case the lights go out, you have at least got this. And the only thing that kept me going, Eric, was the fact that nobody was behind me. <laughs> I, I could turn around and just tell her, bailing on this, not doing this, let's go home. Uh, yeah, so we got to the top, and then we find this door, which is locked. And so I said, well, do they give you the key? And she says, no. <laughs> I mean, in hindsight, it's exciting, but oh my God, I would not do it again. Yeah. Well, you think you were maybe one step away from becoming your own unsolved crime for another hundred years. <laughs> Thank goodness that didn't happen, really. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I found interesting is that the the plot for this book kicks off when Captain Jim is reading. So he's reading the newspaper. He's learning about these two girls. So really, reading is kind of the inciting incident that drives Jim to investigate this uh, suicide that he thinks maybe isn't one. And not only that, he's also inspired by reading the Sherlock Holmes stories that he loves so much. I mean, is this book kind of a love letter to reading or is it more an indictment that reading can get you into a whole lot of trouble? <laughs> Oh, it's it's uh, more of the first uh, love letter to reading. There are uh, nods to a number of writers uh, buried in the book. If you uh, don't pick them up, don't feel bad about it. They're very uh, obscure. <laughs> They're my little code for all the books I loved kind of thing. But it's it's really about... I wanted to show how different people could uh, react to reading in in a different ways it reading elevates us it it pulls us out of ourselves and into another perspective so captain jim's a soldier he's wounded he's lived the life of a soldier and is somewhat disgruntled with it you know unhappy with it uh looking for something more in his life but he's also mixed race so socially he would not have been accepted in the officer's uh, dances or all the social life of the British officers, even though he looks fairly, you know, uh, English. He has an English father. Frankly, the Indians did not like mixing of the races any more than the British did. So he faces discrimination on both sides, uh, and therefore he would have had a fairly lonely life. I imagine yeah. uh, so he's reading the papers he's reading this uh, Sherlock Holmes and of course all of India by the way is fascinated by the whole idea of uh, Sherlock Holmes and his you know brilliance so uh, of course <laughs> Captain Jim uh, would have liked that kind of uh, adventure of deducing things you know the, yeah. the cerebral part of it somewhere in the book he actually grumbles that the actual investigation is <laughs> not as cerebral as Sherlock Holmes. 
<laughs> would have led him uh, to believe, yeah. <laughs> yes, the realization that we all come to after reading too much fiction is that real yeah. life is not that way. <laughs> but it, it's interesting, though, because, you know, being an Anglo-Indian, it has its disadvantages. It also gives him a couple of advantages in the story. He has access to places and to people that he wouldn't have had being purely a British officer, right? Yes, indeed. And so I based that on a number of historical characters, people who were either Anglo-Indian or had um, were English but had been brought up in India. And there were a number of Englishmen, uh, Rudyard Kipling for one, George Orwell, actually, another. And then there's uh, Thomas Cavanaugh, another guy who uh, dressed up as a British officer, he dressed up as a Indian to escape the siege of Lucknow, crept out of the fortress where his comrades were barricaded and got them help. But he had to dress as an Indian to do that. Interesting stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Now, for the next book and and as this series continues, are you seeking out more real world stories, more inspired by true events kind of things? Or are you going to rely more just on your own imagination from now on? (laughs) Yeah, I seem to gravitate to these real-world unsolved events. I have a, a couple of files <laughs> where I store these. Hmm, someday I might look into that that kind of uh, news article. Uh, my next piece is about the World's Fair of 1893. Oh, wow. And I think that decade is just fascinating. Eric, there were so many similarities between that decade and our present decade. Oh, that's terrifying. Yeah, increasing income <laughs> yeah, income inequalities, just gaping. I think people remember the Gilded Age and they remember the Progressive Era. They don't realize what turmoil prompted the Progressive Era. And you know how people reacted? This is a strange thing. They got more racist and they got more anti-immigrant. Yeah. Very curious. And uh, in so many ways having less or feeling put upon makes people uh, respond to the the worst elements of their <laughs> natures you know their fears dictate rather than their true goodness Absolutely. and uh, it's it's happening now <laughs> it's similar yeah. things happening now but the the beauty of it is that it did lead to change it did lead to the progressive era and I just think about how much technology has changed for us in these last two decades and how much technology changed for them. Yeah, that was, it, it, I think that's one thing that, that you're right, does, doesn't necessarily get acknowledged a lot. It, it, the idea of going from the, that sort of pre-industrial world to the post-industrial world in a relatively short amount of time when you look back at it, I mean, what, what a, a complete reversal of your, everyone's way of life. Yeah, and we think that that's happening to us and it's the first time it's ever happened. No, but I wanted to explore that time period because it gave birth to the progressive era. It gave birth to legislation that then protected people and was more promoting of social justice. And so that gives me hope that that will happen in the next couple of decades. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, and, and you're, you're well on your way to your next uh, chapter, your, your next career as a, as a successful novelist. So congratulations, Nev. I mean, I hope uh, this becomes a long-running series for you. And I hope all 90 of those people who sent you rejections are eating their words. <laughs> Well, that's one episode down, but many more to come as we will be back every two weeks with a new episode. I have some amazing authors lined up for you, some exciting guest co-hosts, some new segments, and more. You can find archives of the show at writertypespodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at writertypes. My website is ericbeatner.com. And once again, my newest book is called Two in the Head. I hope you check it out along with all the books from our guests today. Give me a shout. I'd love to hear from you on Twitter. I'd love to hear what authors you'd like to hear and what you're reading and enjoying. Until next time, be safe, be well, and read a good book.